Please bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord once more to ask His blessing on the public preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess our ignorance of all things pertaining to you and to your truth. Apart from your gracious self-revelation in Scripture and in your Son, Christ Jesus, we don't know. And even what we have discovered, we have not known as we ought to have known because our repentance is imperfect. And so we pray, would you teach us now? Would you open our eyes to discover wonderful things in your word? Incline our hearts now to your testimonies. Turn away our eyes and our hearts from looking at vanity and arrest our attention with your truth, your righteousness, your love, your Son, Unite our hearts together to fear your name afresh and satisfy us with the bread of life, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Michael Jordan sells Nike. Steph Curry sells Under Armour. Kevin Hart sells Fabletics. Rihanna sells Louis Vuitton. Timothy Chalamet sells Bleu de Chanel. Celebrity sells, doesn't it? Companies pay money to celebrities because people pay attention to celebrities. But endorsements enhance and popularize the personal brand of the celebrities themselves because the celebrity shines all the brighter by starring in the commercial, by wearing the product. That's just business. But commercialization like that corrupts in the church. In Acts 8, verses 9 to 25, if you turn there with me in your Bibles, Acts 8, verses 9, 9 to 25, the gospel breaks new ground in a new place. But in doing so, it's perceived as cutting into the market share of an existing superstar named Simon, who ran a magic monopoly in Samaria City. Simon sees that he has been bested by Peter's gospel message and miracles, and so he figures, well, if you can't beat him, join him. But he finds that joining them is not going to be the simple business proposition that he had imagined. Because, as he will find out, the church is not a business. And the gospel is not a product. And the Holy Spirit is not for sale. I'm going to read the passage through Acts 8, verses 9 to 25, and then we'll walk back through it to get the sense of it and draw some applications by the end. Acts 8, starting verse 9, reading through verse 25. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, 
This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So you'll remember from earlier in the chapter, Acts 8, really Acts 7, Stephen's martyrdom had ignited a broader persecution of Christians in the city of Jerusalem. And as a result, Jewish Christians had gotten kicked out of that city. But instead of pitying themselves, these Christians preached Jesus as the Christ to the foreign lands that they were exiled to. And Philip had been preaching Jesus in Samaria. And the people of Samaria City paid close attention to his message in verse 6 of chapter 8. God's Spirit was with Philip, casting out demons, healing paralytics right and left. Everyone in Samaria City, is rejoicing at this new, healing, clean power that's doing them good. Now, in Acts 8, verses 9 to 24, we get a flashback. Come to find out, in that same Samaritan city, there was a magic man named Simon who had been amazing everybody there for years. Simon was the incumbent spiritual power in town, preaching himself as someone great. In verse 10, everybody in that town paid attention to Simon as he preached himself as someone great and amazed them with his powers. And they all repeated after him, he really is somebody great. This is the power of God called great, Philip. Look at him. Boy, do we have somebody to introduce you to. Why don't you come tonight and see the show? It was all great 
before Philip got there. Simon, Simon preached himself as someone great. Even great people in the town called Simon the great power of God. And if historical tradition is right, I don't know if it is, but if it is, this guy was something else. This guy was not just a small market celebrity. Justin Martyr, in his second century book, Apology, an apologetic for the gospel, he said that this Simon had a statue built for him in Rome and was considered a kind of God-human hybrid even in Rome. Today we'd say he was into the occult. There was real power in what he did. He wasn't just doing sleight of hand stuff. Don't think pen and teller. Don't think card tricks. Think Ouija board. Sorcery and incantations, curses and spells, rituals and recipes, that's what Simon was into. But in the context of Acts 1 through 7, the name to name Simon, this guy was named Simon, Luke says, and to use the pronoun of him, this man. I mean, if you're reading Acts 1 through 10 straight through in one sitting in like an hour, you're going to start seeing this, 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 and combined with a name, often Jesus, in the apostolic preaching. And now, Luke is naming Simon and using the pronoun of him, this man. And that conflicts with how the apostles have been preaching Jesus. The apostles preached this Jesus whom you crucified in chapter 2, three times. They've preached that this Jesus is the stone the builders rejected that's now the cornerstone. They've preached healing and salvation in the name of Jesus. They've been ordered not to preach in this name twice. The false witnesses against Stephen said, this Jesus is going to destroy this place. And Stephen himself referred to this Moses multiple times as a type of this Christ. And now we read in Acts 8.10 that a whole Samaritan city is referring to this man, Simon, as the power of God that's called great. Ah, Christ has competition from an incumbent name in Samaria City. There's another this man doing great stuff. And everybody's calling him great. So Luke, as the narrator, is setting us up for a showdown. Which this man will win the city's attention and loyalty? Will Jesus oust the incumbent? Or will Simon stay in power? Well, we've already seen that Philip has preached, healed, and cast out demons in Jesus' name. There's great joy in the city because of Jesus' power for them. They had always paid attention to Simon, but now they pay attention to Philip and Philip's gospel and Philip's Christ. So what will Simon do now that Philip has stolen his thunder and his audience for the cause of Christ? Well, we've got to keep reading, verses 12 to 13. When they all believed Philip for what he was saying about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So the city experienced revival. They all believed Jesus is the real king of the real God's real kingdom. They identify with Jesus by being water baptized as a sign of union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And as both small and great used to praise Simon, now both men and women switch sides from the magician 
to the Messiah. So where does that leave the magician? Well, he sticks his finger in the air, which way is the wind blowing, and he follows the crowd. He changes colors like a chameleon in verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. Now, reader, you've got a decision to make. Did he? Did he really believe? And if he believed, in what sense did he believe? What did he believe? Why did he believe? What will that belief produce? And he began devoting himself. It's not just continued, it's devoting himself. It's the same Greek word that they use in Acts 2 when Luke says they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, breaking the bread and prayer. It's that kind of devotion. He's not just kind of, oh, I'm going to continue with, I'm going to hang around with, I'm going to kind of like be a, you know, on the fringes. No, 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 he devoted himself to Philip. And no wonder, because... When he saw the signs and great works of power, the magician himself was amazed. Ah, the amazer has become the amazed. He's met his match, or at least he feels like it. Philip doesn't just have Simon's attention, he has Simon's devotion. So, you know, the optimist in you really wants to assume the best about Simon, right? Like, praise God, magician is converted. Yeah, Luke's going to show you what it looks like when a magician is converted in chapter 19. It's going to look a little different. Because there's a fly in the ointment with Simon. He believed and Philip baptized him even. But what did he believe? Why did he believe? What does that belief produce? Simon begins devoting himself not to Jesus but to Philip. Why? Because there's a new power broker in town and Simon wants in on that action. That's why Simon became a sycophant to Philip. Philip, Philip, can I, can I come with you? Can I come with you? Boy, there's power right there. Simon has become Philip's fanboy because he's got power that Simon wants, is jealous of, and Simon sees his audience slipping through his hands. Philip now has the public attention that Simon used to have. Simon used to have a corner on the market. This was his monopoly. Not anymore. Philip's stolen his turf. So Simon hitches his star to Philip. That's what's happening. Oh yeah, he believed. He believed just enough to convince Philip. Simon sees a real and very popular power in Philip. He can heal paralytics, cast out demons. Man, this guy's establishing quite the following. And that power is cutting into Simon's market share, breaking up his monopoly on the miracle market, but it's also spellbinding to Simon the sorcerer. He can't look away. From Simon's perspective, Peter, or excuse me, Philip has stolen Simon's power over the public. Philip has beaten him at his own game, on his own turf, in front of his own audience. I mean, this is, this is a home game to Simon, and Philip killed it. And in Simon's eyes, what he sees 
Peter doing is even more magical. Verses 14 to 17. We know the Samaritan crowd had real saving faith because that's how Luke himself narrates it. And Luke doesn't lie to you when he narrates something. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. There it is. Luke thinks that the Samaritans received the word of God. That town was now filled with true converts who had truly trusted in Jesus, turned from their sin and self-reliance, turned from their fascination with the occult. And to confirm that reception of the gospel, the apostles from Jerusalem send Peter and John down to Samaria in order to pray that these first Samaritan converts would in fact receive the Holy Spirit just as the first Jewish converts received the Spirit at Pentecost. So the apostles lay hands on these first Samaritan converts and they receive the Holy Spirit, true believers. Their conversion is real. But don't get confused. This passage is not teaching us today that we need to seek a kind of priestly confirmation like Catholics and Anglicans practice. Nor do we need a second experience of baptism in the Spirit subsequent to conversion as in Pentecostalism. This passage is teaching instead that half-blooded Jews got the Holy Spirit on the same terms as full-blooded Jews, because that's what Samaritans were, half-blooded. And they get it by faith alone in Christ alone. They get the Spirit of God by faith alone in Christ alone. He comes on them in the same way for the same reasons and the same connections. The apostles are both conveying and confirming that reception of the Spirit as Jesus handpicked authorized representatives. What's happening in Samaria is exactly what happened in Jerusalem, and the apostles are there to confirm it and to set their stamp of approval on it as Jesus handpicked apostles. So, there will not be a church in Jerusalem and a church in Samaria, a Jerusalem church in Christ and a Samaritan church in Christ. There will simply be a church in Christ that will be multi-ethnic, transnational. Luke's intent in this passage then is not to teach you that you have to get baptized in the Holy Ghost sometime after your conversion or that you need to be confirmed by a Catholic or Anglican priest. Luke's intent is to show that Christ is building one church by bridging a deep-seated, cultural, ethnic, racial divide. The whole church, Jewish and Samaritan, is under the one authority of Jesus, mediated by the apostles with the same blessing of the same Spirit poured out in the same way in response to the same faith in the same Christ. At any rate, the text quickly moves on from the outpouring of the Spirit on the Samaritan frontier to Simon's reaction. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he... He what? Did he ask for them to lay their hands on him so that he could receive the Spirit like everybody else? Nope. Not what happened, is it? He offered them money. It doesn't say Simon himself received the Spirit. Simon saw the Spirit being given. Back at the end of chapter 4, we saw people liquidating assets and bringing the money to the apostles' feet to meet physical needs of poor people. Here, Simon brings the apostles' money, all right, but for a whole different purpose. 
He brought them money saying, Give to me this authority in order that whoever I lay hands on might receive the Holy Spirit. He might as well have said, Sell me that power you just displayed. What's it worth to you, Peter? Sell me some of that authority. Sell me some of that power. Give me a cut. Give me a share of this business. See, that's a, that's a window into Simon's heart. Simon was making a pretty penny from practicing the occult. He's been into dark power, Ouija board stuff, demonic stuff, like the magicians in Egypt making their staffs turn into snakes just like Moses. Simon had made his money and his name off of casting spells, chanting incantations, pronouncing curses, all stuff forbidden in the Old Testament. So now what he sees in the Holy Spirit is not his own reconciliation to God or forgiveness of his sins or cleansing power from the defilement of his own darkness or the ability to repent and believe and walk in the pleasure and power of God. No, 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 no. That is not what he's in this for. Notice, Simon does not ask the apostles to lay their hands on him, again, so that he receives the Holy Spirit in himself and is transformed in his own heart. Simon does not want to experience the Spirit himself. Simon does not want to be influenced or subdued or reoriented by the Spirit himself. Simon wants to be a dispenser of the Spirit. Simon wants to be a local distributor of this new spiritual product and power and experience. He wants to distribute the experience. Come to me. I'll give you a spirit you've never experienced before. Watch this. Sell me this authority, he says. He wants to buy the authority to sell the experience of the Holy Spirit. Kind of sounds like a TV preacher, doesn't it? He wants to buy the authority to sell the experience of the Holy Spirit. Sell me this authority so that whoever I lay hands on might receive the Holy Spirit for a modest cover charge, of course. This passage, this person, is where we get the word simony. Simony is the buying and selling of an official position in the church or the selling of spiritual or church favors from existing church officers. Simon sees the Holy Spirit as just another magic to monetize for himself. People are going to pay for this. What Philip did, what Peter did, people will pay for this. There's a market for that, man. They'll pay me for this spirit, just like they paid me for my spells. And when they do, they're going to think I'm even greater than they thought I was before. Now, what is Peter going to say to all that? Will Peter just be glad that Philip has influenced a local influencer? 
Oh, good job, Philip. You convinced a native, a local, an influencer, and he can now influence the other people as an insider. Is that what Peter thinks? Is that his missiology? Does Peter immediately give Simon a Bible study to lead with his fellow Samaritans? And consider him a frontier missionary on the cutting edge of sharing the gospel with indigenous people groups? Even if his ministry model is still a little self-serving, ah, that'll get ironed out over time. Is this just a conscience issue? A low-level disagreement on the theology of the Holy Spirit, a difference in ministry methods and missiology? This is just an area where Philip's okay to agree to disagree. Let's see. Acts 8, 20 to 23. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. I don't know how he said that. It seems like he might have said it. May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Peter is not going into business with Simon. In fact, Peter tells Simon, in effect, your mentality and your money are both damnable. You think you can buy apostolic authority so that you can sell the Spirit to other people? Curse you. That mentality will take you to hell. May you perish. May your money melt with you. Peter is sickened by the thought of profiting on the Holy Spirit like that. In verse 21, Peter goes on to tell him, there is neither part nor share to you in this matter. That language, neither part nor share, might be an economic pun, like, hey, you're not buying stock in some kind of business here. But it's more likely a people of God emphasis when he says there's no, there's no part or share for you here. That word share is literally inheritance. Well, it's the word lot in the ESV. It's a good translation because that's an Old Testament word for tribal allotments in the promised land. The Levites did not get a part or share in the land because their part or share was the Lord himself in the tabernacle and the temple. And so the other tribes had to share their shares with the Levites. But Simon is no Levite. And he's not getting any part either in the ministry of the, of the apostles or the benefits of that ministry in the church. This is not a business. I am not your partner. And you're not a Christian is what Peter's saying. I don't care that Philip did baptize you. That doesn't mean Jesus saved you. Simon believed, after a fashion at least. Simon was baptized, and yet Simon is not a Christian, and Peter doesn't want him as part of the church. Peter doesn't think he's a Christian because Simon's heart is not right. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, from this wickedness of yours 
and beg the Lord, pray to the Lord, beg Him, if perhaps, and I can't even guarantee it as an apostle, if perhaps the intention of your heart might be forgiven you, because this is a doozy. For I see that you are still in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Peter sees more than Simon can see. Simon saw Philip's power to perform miracles, and he was mesmerized. He saw Peter's authority to distribute the Spirit. He was amazed. But Peter saw Simon's heart from Simon's words and intentions. Simon needs to repent, not only from his magic and his sorcery, but now from the way he's treated the Spirit of the living God as another kind of magic that he should monetize. Instead of buying power in ministry, what Simon really did is he incurred a debt that he was never going to be able to pay because he needed to be forgiven of that debt. What Peter says, when Peter says that Simon is still in the gall of bitterness, he's echoing Deuteronomy 29, 18 and 19. You're still in the gall of bitterness. Beware, Deuteronomy 29, lest there is among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Now, what does that mean? Well, when it gets quoted and interpreted in Hebrews, what it often is assumed to mean is, well, you shouldn't keep bitterness in your heart. If you don't forgive somebody who has sinned against you, even if they don't repent, then that's bitterness, and you don't want that bitter root bearing poisonous fruit. That's not what it means. Listen to the original context in Deuteronomy 29. Beware there, lest there be a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when his heart when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. That's the bitter root. You're saying you believe. You're saying you're in this covenant, and all the time you're convincing yourself, I'll be okay even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. I'll get baptized. I'll say I believe. I'll hang on to Philip. But I'm still going to try to make a good living off of what he's doing. That's walking in the stubbornness of Simon's heart. That's the bitter root. And that's what Peter's saying he's still in. That's what Peter thinks Simon is doing, telling his own heart he'll be okay, even though he's trying to buy regional rights to sell an experience of the Holy Spirit in Samaria. Simon is still in the bond of iniquity, and that's Peter's way of telling Simon, you're no Christian no matter what you told Philip. You're still a slave to your own sin. You're a slave. Your chains have not fallen off. Your heart is not free. You have not gone forth and risen and followed Jesus. You're still in prison. So Peter tells him, beg forgiveness of the Lord for what he intended in his heart. Selling of the Holy Spirit. Now, how does Simon respond to that command of Peter? Does he repent? But Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. I think the word but is a better translation than and. It's a mild adversative in the Greek. And I think there's a reason for that. Because Peter said one thing, and Simon said something different. And in point of fact, Simon actually specifies you. You pray for me. There's a pronoun there, you pray for me. 
You be the one to pray. I'm not praying. You pray. You pray for me to the Lord. Why? So that nothing might come upon me from what you have said. Is that what Peter told him to pray? Is that what Peter told him to do? Again, that pronoun matters. Compare Peter's command with Simon's reply. Peter said, Beg the Lord if perhaps the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. Simon says, You pray. You beg for me that nothing of what you said will come upon me. You pray. You're the one with the power connection. You're the one distributing the Spirit, not me. But that's still operating on a magical basis, isn't it? That's a magical worldview. I, I could never pray to that God. That's your God. So maybe it's fear. I mean, that's putting a really nice face on. He's afraid. And he may well be saying, look, man, actually, none of this matters enough to me to pray about any of it on my own. You pray. If you want. But if you pray, if you bother to pray for me, pray that nothing of what you said happens to me. Now listen, look at that again. Peter told him to take responsibility for his sin. Repent. What is Simon hoping to do? He's hoping to avoid responsibility for his sin. Pray that none of that bad stuff that you said would happen to me. Now, pray that nothing of what you said happens to me. Ooh, that's slippery, isn't it? That's a quiet time stopper right there. Pray to the Lord that nothing of what you said happened to me in the context of everything that, that Peter just said. What do you make of that? It's a little vague, isn't it? Pray to the Lord that nothing of what you said would happen to me. What exactly is it that you don't want to have happen to you, Simon? Luke himself keeps that sentence vague probably because he wants us to think about Simon's intent. What did he mean by that? And probably Simon intended to keep it vague himself because he could not bring himself to specify what he really meant. So how do we know what Simon really meant? Well, we, all we have to go on is how he's acted and what he said and what Luke has said about him. And he's in this for himself. He's in this for attention, name, power, money. I'm the power of God called great. This is my turf. And you just rejected my business proposition. You won't give me a cut. And I made a pretty nice offer. This is business. So Simon says, I can't quite bring myself to say the quiet part out loud, but don't let it happen to me as you said. You feel me? You picking up what I'm putting down, Peter? Don't let it happen to me like you said. I heard you curse me. Your money perish with you? That's speaking my language. That's how I talk. That's the kind of sentence people pay me to say for them. 
in my spells and curses. So if you're going to pray anything for me, pray to cancel that curse on me and my money. Just don't let that happen, because that, that's what I care about. Me and my money. Your whole bit about my heart being in the gall of bitterness and the bond of blah, blah, blah. I'm not really feeling that, man. That doesn't really communicate to me. I don't really, eh, whatever. My heart not being right before God. Whatever, Peter. I'm a businessman. I mean, he's your God anyway, not mine. What does my heart have to be right with him? I'm not a principled man like you, Peter. The only principle I care about is the principle that I just laid down on my investment deal. Could you give me that back, please? So if you insist on praying for me, then don't pray for me to have the strength to make a change of heart. Don't pray for me that I would repent like you said. Just pray that I don't pay the price for what I did because I see there's real power in what you're doing like there was real power in what I was doing, but I wasn't in it for the same reasons as you. And I'm starting to feel like I'm a little in over my head here. So just let me move on without losing my shirt, will you? I think the ambiguity, the unclarity of Simon's sentence is supposed to lead you down that road. He's not for real, is he? He just... He just wants to get out of the obligation he put himself under. And now he's feeling the heat. Whatever Simon thinks, what's clear is that the gospel has conquered the incumbent competition in Samaria because Simon the Great goes home with his tail between his legs, never to be heard from again. Christ conquers the occult. Meanwhile, in verse 25, the apostles show their approval of the Samaritan mission of Philip, not only by laying hands on uh, those Samaritans to confer the Spirit, but also by evangelizing other Samaritan towns and people on their way back to Jerusalem. So this remains one gospel mission, not two. One church, not two. One people of God, not two. And notice the divided kingdom of Israel from the Old Testament is being reunited right here under the preaching of the gospel by the apostles in Samaria, the northern kingdom. No more northern and southern kingdom. No more Ephraim making war on Judah. It's one kingdom ruled by one Christ who is himself the true temple where God meets all kinds of people, no matter where they live or where their old temple used to be. Jesus is their temple now. No more Gerizim. No more Jerusalem. Jesus is the temple. And we all meet in Him. The point of that whole narrative is that Christ conquers competing powers in order to incorporate the repentant into His one people. Christ conquers competing powers in order to incorporate the repentant into his one people. Simon is the incumbent power in Samaria. The Samaritans went from believing that Simon was great to believing that Jesus was great and that Jesus is really the king of God's kingdom and that Jesus has all authority and power in heaven and on earth. 
The Samaritans are subdued by that good news. By contrast, Simon is conquered by the gospel. His reign of sorcery and deception ends even as false faith in the true gospel is exposed as selfish and he is denied any share in the new people of God in Samaria. In verse 25, there's a cherry on top where the apostles preach the gospel in other Samaritan towns on their way back to Jerusalem. The takeaway is that Christ's gospel conquered its competition in Simon even though he was a sorcerer. And it freed those who had been deceived by Simon's false gospel, and it even exposed Simon himself when he tried to buy his way into Christ's power and people. The true gospel then exposes false gospels, and it even exposes false faith in the true gospel in order to free those who were held captive by lies. Christ conquers competing gospels and frees people who were deceived by them and incorporates them into his new body, the church. We want to draw a few applications. The first application, of course, is to Jesus himself. The greatness of God's power is concentrated in Jesus and in his resurrection. Simon is not the power of God called great. Jesus is. Jesus is that. Jesus said in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Near the very beginning of his two-volume work, Luke records in Luke 4.36 that they were all amazed at Jesus and said to one another, What is this word for with authority and power? He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Authority and power. Immediately. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they received power from on high by the outpouring of his own Holy Spirit, which he himself sent when he ascended to heaven. And both Philip and Peter exercised that power here in Samaria to the conversion of many people who had lived there and to the conquering of Simon's unrepentant heart. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, is the greatness of God's power in personal form. And his spirit is not simply an impersonal force to be manipulated. His spirit is a person, the third person of the internal trinity, who lives in all those who trust in Jesus to teach us what Scripture means, to empower our obedience from the inside out, and to preserve us from error and sin. A church application. Christ's church is one. We touched on this before. The reason the apostles send Peter and John to Samaria is to confirm or ratify or endorse the Christian faith of the Samaritans by witnessing the outpouring of the Spirit on them even though they're not full-blooded Jews. God intentionally delayed the giving of the Spirit in Samaria until the apostles got there. God caused that delay not to teach us that the giving of the Spirit will be delayed for us until we have a second experience of the Spirit as in Pentecostalism, and that we should seek that second experience and pray for it until we get it. Or that we all need to seek confirmation in a Catholic or Anglican priest. The delay of the Spirit in Samaria was because that was the first time the gospel was going to the first non-Jews, the Samaritans. There was deep historic hostility 
between Jews and Samaritans, and God wanted to make sure that the early experience of the church was an experience of one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, as Paul preaches in Ephesians 4. The first Samaritans got the Spirit just like the first Jews got the Spirit, which means the Samaritans are not second-class citizens of God's kingdom. God has one people based on one faith alone, in one Jesus alone, enjoying the same seal of the same Spirit. There are not two peoples of God based on ethnicity. There is one people of God based on faith. Jesus has one bride the multi-ethnic church, and that is why God delayed his spirit to the Samaritans until the Jerusalem apostles can make contact with them, even physical contact, laying their hands on them, and endorse the Samaritans' initial reception of the gospel. So again, the soul, this is an experiential application related. Just to be clear, we don't first believe the gospel and then have to wait for another experience of baptism in the Spirit subsequent to conversion. That's Pentecostalism. We think that's a misunderstanding of what's going on in this passage. And this is the passage they use to confirm that kind of doctrine, which we would think is wrong based on how it's just been preached this morning. Nor do we need to await a Roman Catholic or Anglican experience of confirmation The delay at Samaria is not the rule for receiving the Spirit. It's the exception. That's why he said in verse 16, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Usually it happens all at once. Another experiential application, not everything that calls itself a sign is from the Holy Spirit. Not everything that calls itself a sign is from the Holy Spirit. Simon was an amazing man who could do amazing signs. You would have been amazed. You would have wondered, how is he doing that? But he was not a Christian. He was using real power, and it was dark power. The occult is real, it is deceptive, and it is dangerous. And Jesus warns us about guys just like Simon in Matthew 24, 24. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. This is real. Simon claimed to be the power of God, called great. He's using God's name and doing signs and wonders. That's still happening today. And he got other people calling him the power of God, called great. Other people introduced him as the power of God, called great. Great men, not just Not just totally uneducated people or children or gullible people. Great people called him great. The power of God called great. 
And Jesus warned us against trusting such leaders simply because they can show us great signs. Paul warned us in 2 Thessalonians 2, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You love signs, you love power, or do you love truth? Because if you don't love truth, power is going to look really persuasive to you, no matter what kind of power it is, because it can do stuff. So concentrate on loving the truth in Scripture, not seeking signs that you can see. Dark power is real power. It is demonic power. It is deceptive power, and it masquerades as an angel of light. Simon's power was part of the spirit of Antichrist. Not every sign is from the spirit, even if it happens in a building called a church. And not everything that calls itself faith is saving. Not everything that Scripture calls faith is saving. The text says Simon believed. And Luke says, what do you make of that? Hmm? You believe that Simon believed? Does it look like it? As it turned out, Simon's faith was false faith. That is not uncommon in Scripture. That's why Jesus told the parable of the soils in Mark 4. Some seed falls on rocky ground, and when those people hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root, and they fall away in persecution. John 2, many believed in Jesus when they saw his signs, but they didn't trust, but he didn't trust them. They believed in him, John says, but he didn't trust them. Because he knew what was in them. As we're studying in Wednesday nights in James 2, there's a kind of faith that doesn't save. A faith that refuses to love. Faith, false faith. False faith can arise even from true preaching. Philip was a good preacher. A lot of people that were saved through his preaching and false faith arose from it as well. When the people saw Jesus feed the 5,000 in John 6, they say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. But how many of them even make it through the end of that chapter with their faith in Jesus intact. Amazement, even at Christ's power, is not the same thing as faith in Jesus' person, in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. Simon was amazed. He even wanted to be part of it, in a sense, but his faith was false, and Peter rebuked him for it and told him, you're not a Christian. You're in the gall of bitterness. You're in the bond of iniquity. I don't talk like that about Christians. We talk about that... At Talk like that about non-Christians. But he believed. Luke says he believed in some sense. He was baptized by a man as godly as Philip. Philip had a good reputation. That's why he was a deacon in Acts 6. He held to the faith. He was full of wisdom. And even he baptized Simon when Simon was not actually a true convert. He was still stuck 
and the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, and his heart was not right within him. So how do we discern false conversions? Because they happen. Well, we see in Simon some true signs of false conversions. False faith follows a crowd. False faith follows a crowd. Everyone believed in Samaria City. And only then do we discover, ah, Simon also believed. Simon lost his audience, and so Simon followed his audience. Motives matter, and very often false faith only believes because, because others are believing and it wants to be considered as believing like they do. Of course, this only becomes evident very often after the fact. But it's a good question to ask, either of your own faith or that of others. Am I believing in Jesus only because other people are believing? Many of us had to ask that question at five or six or seven or eight years old after a vacation Bible school class. Many of us wonder, was I believing just, I mean, I do. Did I go out into the hallway when I was five years old to pray that prayer just because seven other people did in my class at VBS? I'm not sure. I know I believe later, but I'm not sure that was the time. Am I only believing because other people are believing or am I believing because I know that I need Jesus to be my righteousness and salvation before God on Judgment Day? No matter what anybody else does or says or believes. False faith also still believes in and promotes the greatness of self. Simon's name and Simon's prosperity was still more important to him than Jesus' name or Jesus' cause in the world. Simon's still just trying to make a name for himself off of Jesus, and he's trying to make a buck off the Holy Spirit. Who's still great to Simon? Simon is still great to Simon. Very often, false faith only believes in order to make a name for self, not for Jesus. And when we let that kind of person into the church, and when we make them a pastor, the church becomes another local market for a product or another place to show off my gifts and abilities. I can project an image to people here that I'd be unable to project anywhere else. I mean, think about how you use social media and how other professing Christians use it. I'm not saying it's wrong. Don't hear me like that. Don't. Don't hear this as saying, I, pastor thinks I should delete my Facebook account, and pastor thinks that everybody should delete their Facebook account. I did not say that. I'm not saying that. Go back and listen to the tape. <laughs> not saying that. But why are you posting what you're posting? Is it really evangelistic? Is it really edifying? Are you really just keeping people posted? Or is it self-promoting? Is it really just narcissism masquerading as ministry or an update? 
Am I really just sustaining relationships? Or am I pretending to be, and am I presenting myself as someone or something great by what I present to them? And what's my honest reason for posting such a carefully curated collection of pictures and captions to go with them? Why do I do that? I'm just telling you to ask the question. I'm not telling you to delete your account. But ask the question. And then ask, what does that say about my faith in Jesus? False faith also seeks to use the Spirit for self rather than presenting self for the Spirit's use. See how easy that is to turn around? Simon viewed the Spirit as a power to make a profit. Man, there are so many churches today that will let you get away with thinking like that as a businessman yourself. You'll just go and they'll just preach that to you. Hey man, maybe the reason you're not turning as much of a profit as you want is because of the X, Y, and Z. Just get that right and boom, you're going to explode. Your bottom line is going to get fat. The Spirit is a person not just a power, and we present ourselves for him to use as his instruments for good in the lives of others. The Spirit is not a force that we can manipulate for our own benefit or profit. This is not Star Wars. You're not looking at, um, should I go to the dark side or to the light? Or, well, it seems like the light seems so much, you know, they've got Luke, and they've got Obi-Wan, and they're really nice, and I don't know, but boy, the power of, it's not like that. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit who makes us holy. That's His purpose in your life, no matter what it does to your bottom line. And He is the Spirit of truth who teaches us the truth about God, about Himself, and about the way salvation works. We don't harness Him. He teaches and sanctifies us. If you're upside down on that, then your faith may be false. False faith also hates and fears consequence without hating sin or loving Christ. Simon feared consequence, but he didn't fear the Lord. He hated the idea of losing his money, but he didn't hate his sin as sin or for how it offended God. He hated the prospect of consequence, but he did not love Christ. Friend, deal honestly with yourself. Is that you? Do you love Christ for who He is, regardless of what He can do for you in this life? Or do you just hate the idea of consequence for your sins? Do you love the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, or do you just fear that He will take your fun away from you if you trust Him too much? And finally, false faith will not confess wrong or pray for repentance. Simon never confesses his sin. He never repents or expresses any sort of regret at all, really, for offering to buy the right to dispense the Spirit, even though that's exactly what Peter told him, repent. He doesn't want to pray for himself, and he only wants others to pray on his behalf what his flesh already is pursuing anyway. The church is not a business. The gospel is not a product. And the Spirit is not for sale. 
Peter's response to Simon shows us that we are not supposed to be commodifying the gospel or selling you an experience of the Holy Spirit in the worship of this church. We're not selling you anything here. We do want to persuade you. We want to convince you, call you to turn from your sin and self-reliance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. We want you to be taught by God's Spirit and made holy by Him. But any ministry that tries to sell you an experience of the Holy Spirit is wicked, maybe even demonic. Sales techniques can be subtle, from fronting benefits and hiding costs, to music and preaching that plays on your emotions, to methods that mirror your own cultural preferences right back to you. So if you're going to believe the gospel from us, we want it to be clear that you want Jesus for who he really is. We don't want you to get baptized because you think you're going to get something from Jesus that Jesus doesn't promise to give you. We don't want to fool you into thinking God sent Jesus to make a big deal out of you. God sent Jesus so you would make a big deal out of him. Jesus is the big deal, not you, not me. Simon was proclaiming himself as someone great. Philip was proclaiming Jesus as the great king of God's kingdom. And at the end of the day, every church should want to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what Philip's doing. With ourselves as your servants for his sake, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We're not trying to prove anything here. We don't want power over you. We don't want you being codependent on us somehow, or being impressed with us, or viewing us as anything. We want you to understand God's love to you in Christ and his power for your holiness in his spirit. We want you to love Jesus more by understanding him more from the Bible more. And we want you to think of Jesus as the power of God that is great and to obey him and serve him and know him, and repent towards him, and to love his visible body here in the local church. And we want you to grow in your confidence that Jesus is still conquering competing powers to include repentant souls into his one people. Any preacher that says otherwise, trying to sell you something. Let's pray together. Father, we confess we are so impressionable. We like to see power. We like to see display. We, we, we like to see spectacle. We like to be impressed. We like things that make us say, wow. And we're persuaded by them so often. And so we pray, give us a love for your truth and, and subdue our hearts by that truth. May we submit our rationality to that truth so that we can discern error when we see it, even when it's powerful, that we not, might not be deceived by it. Undeceive our hearts, we pray. 
May we trust that Jesus is the greatness of your power in human form for our holiness, for our knowledge of your truth, for reconciliation to you, for the forgiveness of our sins, for obedience to you in this world, and for life everlasting in the next. Lord, do these things, we pray, so that Jesus would be made great in the eyes of others around us and in our own eyes. Amen.